I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to Nothing Concrete, the Barbican podcast. On this week's archive edition, we shift our focus back to 2013, when the venue celebrated composer Benjamin Britten's centenary. I always like to try and get inside the composer's mind to work out why he was writing the pieces he did at that particular time. All this, to me, helps build up a picture which enables you to appreciate the music. On the 8th to the 10th of November 2013, you could have been in the audience for Illuminating Britain, a celebration of the composer. This weekend was curated by filmmaker and author of Britain's Children, John Bridcut. He surrounded the music with a series of talks, discussions, film screenings and even a quiz. Broadcaster Sandy Burnett spoke to John for this podcast. So John Bridcut, how are you seeking to illuminate Britain? Really by exploring his life. The thing is that um, he is perhaps the best documented composer of the 20th century, maybe ever, because he never threw anything away. And so his archive in Suffolk is full of stuff. I mean, there are 80,000 letters there that he wrote or received. There are, of course, his scores, his recordings, all aspects of his life. He kept a diary as a young man. This is an incredible treasure trove for anybody who wants to explore his life. Now, you get a lot of people who say, well, I don't need to know about his life. I just can enjoy the music. You know, people, for instance, with Wagner, find um, Wagner's life very off-putting, and they'd they'd rather just like the music, or perhaps they find that the, the life makes them dislike the music. In the case of Britain, my feeling is that the the life illuminates the music. And if you're lucky enough to enjoy the music without worrying about the life, well, terrific. That's that's great. For, for me, I always like to try and get inside the composer's mind to work out why he was writing the pieces he did at that particular time, what the sort of influences were on him, other musical influences, influences from outside the musical world maybe, what was going on in his personal life. All this, to me, helps build up a picture which enables you to appreciate the music. And I think in the case of Britain, it's particularly true that you find, you, for instance, you cannot understand really Britain's music without understanding the relationship between him and Peter Pears. That's the sort of the number one thing. But of course, there are so many other things that, that you find are intriguing. I mean, his, his love of sport and speed, this is something which I think most people have uh, have not really grasped. This is something that actually fertilizes his music all the time. He's one of the composers who writes fast music, 
unlike most other composers, it's not just marking the metronome marking. The music is thought of really fast. I never met Britain, but I've met lots of people who have. And towards the end of his life, I don't think he presented himself in the best light, did he? He was perhaps in decline himself and was aware of it. Well, yes, I think he felt that very strongly. There was, of course, a burgeoning of serial composition after the war, particularly. And contemporary music was more and more at odds with what Britain was writing. He did, of course, write some serial composition. I think he saw it as a challenge. He always liked puzzles and conundrums. And I think, although he found a lot of serial music rather dry, he thought, well, there's a way of doing this, which uses keys, uses tonality, uses tunes. And he was very successful. I mean, take, for example, Turn of the Screw. That is a piece which has immense power. It, some people would say it's his finest opera. They don't think of it as a serial composition. It's got, it's full of tunefulness. And yet, the opening melody, well, at the time that the governess arrives, it's a tune, but if you examine it, it's the 12 semitones of the scale played one after the other. And that is quite extraordinary because you have no idea really what's going on. Now, the thing is that the, the whole of the turn of the screw is a set of theme and variations. And that theme that we heard is, is varied in each orchestral interlude between each scene. And what Britain does is that he changes key, each of these variations. It goes up a semitone in the first act, up seven steps in the scale, as it were, and it comes down seven in the second act. And it's a, it's a little joke he's having, if you like, which is about turning the screw. The audience isn't aware that it's being ratcheted up like that. But I think subconsciously, it explains the tension in the music. And that is, it's a serial composition in, uh, in essence. And yet, it is completely based on keys and tonality. It's such a great example that I'm so glad you brought up the turn of the screw because it's so fascinatingly clever. And yet when you sit there in the opera house, all you're aware of is the terrifying drama that's unfolded. So there's a cerebral underpinning, but you're really most aware of Britain, the brilliant dramatist, the human side of the composer. I think that's really interesting because people criticised Britain when he was a young man for being clever. You know, being clever, in, in, particularly in British artistic circles in the 30s, was regarded as a terrible crime. And people said, you know, his music, and still, some people today still say that his music is clever, like the fugue at the end of The Young Person's Guide to the Orchestra, the, and the way that the theme comes in over the top of that. I'm an absolute magical moment, but it's also clever. But to be clever doesn't mean to say that you can't actually touch the heart and touch the emotions. It, he manages to do it. He, he is a clever man. I mean, he, he can write so fast. 
he probably wrote faster than any other composer since Mozart. And yet, it's completely thought through and digested. And this is a man of rare, rare talent. So how are you seeking to reappraise or represent Britain's reputation here at the Barbican in November? I think the key thing is to find the range in his music. What we're doing in Illuminating Britain is to explore aspects of his life. We, we're going to hear quite a lot of, of the smaller works in many recitals from students at the Guildhall. And we're going to, of course, hear bigger pieces. We've got Ian Bostridge singing Our Hunting Fathers. Now, that's a piece that he wrote in, 19, in the mid-1930s. He called it My Opus One. I mean, it wasn't his Opus One, but he felt that it, it had relaunched his career. It was the, most, the piece he was most proud of. And it's an astonishing piece, which then sank from view. People didn't play it at all until it was revived right at the end of his life. In the last few years, he sort of... Um, he, it wasn't a question of allowing performances. It just, I think people didn't really think of, of playing it. And it's, it's perhaps his most avant-garde piece of music and, and gripping. Do you think it's a good thing that Britain didn't want to be part of the British establishment? He was, ve he was very rude about the Beechams and the sergeants of this world. Do you think that strengthened him as a composer, not being part of that? Not taking on uh, the role of music director at the Opera House after the war, for example? Yes, it's interesting. He was asked to be master of the Queen's music at, at the end of his life which he turned down because he was then quite ill. But it's, it's quite a, an edgy subject, this, as to whether he was part of the establishment. I mean, he certainly wasn't part of that uh, Bolt-Sergeant establishment, and he, as a young man, was very scornful, as he was of a lot of things. He slightly mollified his attitudes, I think, later in life. But he avoided the sort of being part of the English pastoral tradition and so on. And one can debate whether that English pastoral tradition was all it was cracked up to be. I mean, Vaughan Williams is supposed to be the apogee of that, and yet, actually, his music, a lot of the time, isn't pastoral at all. But anyhow, that's another discussion. As far as Britain was concerned, yes, he did. He looked for a more continental link. His mentor was Frank Bridge, who had found great inspiration from Schoenberg on the continent, and he moved away from that English pastoral tradition. But Britain, in other ways, was part of the establishment. I mean, he, he had close connections with the royal family. And he, of course, he wrote the opera for the coronation. Um, in some ways, you can't be more establishment than that. It got him into trouble because he, he wasn't just going to write a Merry England type of opera. He, he had a sense of occasion and there are the courtly dances and that sort of thing. But it was a real drama about a woman and the, the contrast between her public and her private life which some people felt was very undignified to present to the Queen on the few days after she'd been crowned.
One final thing I want to cover is Britain's relationship with with amateurs and with young people creatively. I think it's to his great credit that he's wrote so much music for amateurs and young people to to play. And one of your discussions is about that very subject, Britain the community composer. Yes, he he said once that his job was to be useful and useful to the living. And that's a sort of credo, really, for him. I think it was partly why he set up the Albra Festival and he devoted so much of his precious time to running a festival, quite apart from writing music for it. He was actually organising it. And, of course, there were various community events, like Let's Make an Opera. He'd written two or three chamber operas, and he thought, right now, we'll do an opera which has got a lot of children in it, and it's also going to involve the audience. Um, And the audience, you know, all these people slightly stuffy types, I suspect, in, in, in the late 1940s, sitting in the Jubilee Hall in Alborough, suddenly expected to, um, to take the part of different animals and birds. And this was a completely new departure. And he was very committed to writing and working with amateurs. But he didn't let go of his very high standards. I mean, I think he could get quite prickly with um, amateur singers if he felt they weren't quite measuring up to what he had in mind. There was a famous case at the time of the opening of the Maltings when he, um, he wrote this piece, The Building of the House, very appropriate for the, the opening. The Queen was there and everything. And the Albra Festival Singers, which is a group of amateurs in Suffolk, were singing this. And they came in, in the first phrase, a semitone sharp. What that must have done to him, I mean, I'm amazed he didn't stop and say, let's start again, because with somebody with his acute ear, it must have been absolute agony. And it was a piece that he himself had written, of course. At the same time, he was very tolerant of children and knowing that children could not necessarily deliver all the goods all the time. The most famous case of his children's music was Noah's Flood, his children's opera, which has um, one or two adult parts, but the rest is all for children, children players, children singers. And Sir Charles McCarris, who was very much involved in the first performances of Noah's Flood, told me this wonderful story that one of the best parts of the orchestration is for bugles. And he gets these children to play bugles. This is when the animals are, are coming into the ark two by two. And one day the boys who were playing the bugles weren't free. They'd got a scout um, scout rehearsal or something. I mean, there was some event that they had to attend. And so some professionals had to be drafted in, the trumpet players from the orchestra that was playing in one of the other concerts. And Charles McCarris said, you know, these trumpeters were absolutely perfect, spot on. Every note was in place. And he said, and it sounded all wrong because somehow Britain wrote Noah's Flood allowing for slightly dubious intonation at points. The ensemble would be rocky And that's part of its charm. And when it's all absolutely clinically perfect, it doesn't work. For the moment, John Bridcutt, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much. Look forward to seeing you at the concerts.
Thanks for listening to this archive edition of Nothing Concrete, the Barbican podcast, here to inspire more people to discover and love the arts with weekly episodes of archive finds and theme series. Subscribe to Nothing Concrete on Acast, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. And if you can, leave us a review to help us get the word out. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.